right. Well, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's what we've been doing here. Um, we, of course, took a break this last week and talked about the first coming of Christ. But this is actually a passage that talks, among other things, about the second coming of Christ. So let me just maybe start here. The Bible gives us many places where it tells us about the events that are yet to come. And it's called prophecy. So some of these prophecies have already been fulfilled. For instance, the one that we talked about last week, um, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That was a prophecy uh, that was given by the prophet Micah. Some 500 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's a prophecy. God declaring ahead of time that things are going to happen. And then as it happens, um, we're able to look back and say, look how faithful the Lord is. But there's a lot of scripture that is yet to be fulfilled prophecy. Um, in other words, it's still talking about things that are yet to come. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. It's in a passage that's talking about things that are yet to come. And uh, the Lord has been faithful in those other prophecies, and we can, be, we can count on him that he's going to be faithful as we move forward. So we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 17, the rise and fall of the Antichrist. Paul's writing a group of believers um, that are in Thessalonica. They've been told that they have missed out, that um, they are in the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment and the wrath of God. They don't understand why that would be. So Paul writes to correct them and says, you're not in the day of the Lord. Don't worry about it. And he gives them some reasons. One of the things he then goes on to talk about, because central to why they are not in the day of the Lord, is because the Antichrist has not come. Um, so he says, he hasn't come, so you're not there. But then he doubles back and he begins to talk about the Antichrist. And he talks about the return of Jesus Christ who will judge him. So we'll pick up that account there in verse 8. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So in verse 8, we, re we see here that the Antichrist is going to be revealed. There's going to come a day on planet Earth when he's going to step on the scene. Those who know the word of God, those that are followers of the Lord, I believe the church will already be gone. I think that's part of the reference in the first two words of verse 8. And then after, after the restraining force that's present within the church, the Holy Spirit is um, gone. Then he's going to come on the scene. And for those that have the word of God and look to the word of God, they will know who he is because he's going to be revealed. And the Word of God gives us the indications to know who that guy is. So I want to give you three of those indicators that we find. Um, one of them is right in this passage in chapter 2 that we've already looked at. And a couple of the other ones will be from the book of Daniel and Revelation. So first of all, when the Antichrist is revealed, he's going to demand that he be worshipped in the temple of God in Israel. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, if you just back up a few verses, you see that, that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So there's going to come this moment, and it's called the abomination of desolation, and he will say, you must worship me. This will be a very clear indicator, a very clear um, unveiling that that is the Antichrist. This is the one whom the Lord is going to destroy, but he has things that he's going to walk out. So, number one, 
He's going to demand to be worshipped. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 15 through 23. Uh, Daniel 9, 27. Pro- the same prophecy is given there. Daniel gave it first. Jesus picked it up again and reiterated it. And Matthew uh, 24, verses 15 through 23. Now Paul's picking it up. And he also reiterates that there in verse 4, that the Antichrist will do this deed of demanding to be worshipped. The second thing we we can know about the Antichrist is where he's coming from. He's going to come from an empire that is talked about a bunch in Scripture. We don't have the name of it listed in Scripture, so we're left to kind of pick up on some of the clues. But Daniel, again, gives us a ton of information about the kingdom that the Antichrist is going to come from. And we find it in Daniel chapter 7, um, verses 16, all the way down to verse 25. And we read about this. Actually, we read about five different kingdoms that are mentioned. Four of these are earthly kingdoms. The fifth one is the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that will be the last kingdom. Um, the fourth kingdom is the kingdom that the Antichrist is going to rise out of. So that'll be the last world um, empire, world kingdom um, before the kingdom of God. There are three other kingdoms that are mentioned before his, and we know exactly who they are because Daniel tells us. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go search that out. It's there. Go study for yourself the word of God, and you'll see that it is actually named. But let me read this passage, Daniel 7 Beginning at verse 16, it says, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he saw these four beasts. What are these four beasts? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's a real long time in case you don't know that, but that's forever. Verse 19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the tin horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. We're talking about the Antichrist here. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from his kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue the uh, three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law, And here's where the clue really comes in. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. And that is exactly what's going to take place is after the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist comes and intends to change everything that was dear and precious 
to Israel and their, their new, uh, newly built temple and keeping their laws. He's going to change that um, and not advocating that we go back to it, but it's going to be there and he's going to try to change that. And he's going to, for the next three and a half years, he's going to uh, just terrorize the nation of Israel and those people. One more passage, Revelation 17, we see the same imagery um, is picked up in the last book of the Bible as was in Daniel in relationship to this fourth kingdom. He says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. So 96 AD, John is saying, these guys haven't come, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they shall give their power and authority to the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. So, you know, I've just read two passages. You could read dozens of passages about this guy. Um, he is a, a dark leader that's going to deceive the world, um, and many are going to follow. And eventually, as we just read, Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to destroy him. So what were the first three kingdoms before the fourth kingdom? Well, we're told it's the Babylonian kingdom, it's a Persian kingdom, and it's a Grecian kingdom. The fourth empire, which is the one he's most interested in, is not given a name. It doesn't, scripture doesn't come right out and say, this is the Roman Empire. Now, that's my, that's my leaning, is that it is a Roman Empire, and we'll talk about that. But you can't find a scripture verse that says the fourth empire, or the fourth beast, is the Roman Empire. Um, you can find it for the first three, but not for the fourth. The fifth, we know, it's the kingdom of God, and we know who's king, who the king is. That's King Jesus. But it's this fourth one that has a little bit of mystery still surrounding it. We know he's going to be dreadful. This kingdom will be dreadful. It'll be it'll devour. Um, and it is going to be, in particular, really bad for three and a half years for the saints. So who is this? Well, one of the, the um, names that has come forth, and I'll give you two, two kingdoms that um, are talked about. Both of them have... Um, the idea that they're coming back into power. And that's kind of the, the thought, is that you had the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire. The next was the Roman. And some would argue that the next real empire that fits this description is the Ottoman or the Islamic that became the Ottoman Empire. And so people will, you know, they'll land on either side of this argument. But to me, the one thing that kind of tips the scales in favor of uh, it being the Roman Empire, I'll give you a couple of things, is, is in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about prophecy concerning Jesus and being cut off. And then it also says, and the prince of the people who is to come shall destroy the city. Well, we know who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was Titus in 70 AD, as Jesus prophesied the city would be destroyed. His people were the, the Roman em Empire, and it's this one that's going to come from this empire in Daniel 9 that makes the treaty with the nation of Israel and commits the abomination of desolation. And so that's why many would assign uh, this fourth empire as the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, it's not been around um, in, you know, in quite some time. So this is why it's often called the revived Roman Empire. It comes back on the scene. The same thing is said about the Islamic or the Ottoman Empire, and they, they take this. But it seems like there's more biblical weight to go with the Roman Empire than any other. 
but it's, a, it's not a ton of information. The other thing that stands out to me is when Jesus came the first time, it was the Roman Empire that was in power. And it was a Roman Empire that all of the disciples and all of the Jews expected the Messiah to overthrow and to establish that fifth kingdom. But it didn't happen at that time. That fourth empire, it was it pronounced that judgment, that death sentence of crucifixion upon Jesus. When Jesus comes back again, it just seems prophetic justice, poetic justice, that it would be the Roman Empire again, but this time Jesus destroys that kingdom and fulfills exactly um, what the disciples thought he was going to do. So that, that's the fourth kingdom. But the important thing for us to understand about the Antichrist is really this. We could debate about which, who it's going to be. The important thing is this, is he's going to have world-dominating power at the end of the age. That's what we're reading. And that Jesus is going to come back and he is going to destroy him. So he will commit the abomination of desolation. That's how he's going to be revealed. He will be in that fourth empire that is ruling at the end of, of days. And number three, um, he's going to control commerce. This is how he is revealed. Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18 says, he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. So among other things, this Antichrist, this world leader, which is dreadful and different than any other, that's ever come, this is what Daniel says, is he's going to control all trade. You're not going to buy or sell without permission from him, without having this mark or his name associated with that transaction. Now, you know, we, we hear a lot about, well, it's going to become a cashless society. You know, maybe it is a cashless society, but the Bible doesn't say that, just so you know. It doesn't say it will be a cashless society. It just says that he's going to control all buying and selling. Um, to think that that would be a way to do it, it makes sense to us as we sit here today. But that's not definitive. But it is interesting that if all transactions were to take place digitally, you could see how it could all be controlled. And that it wouldn't be able to happen. And he's going to have a stranglehold Upon the world. So these three things are, are ways in which he's going to be revealed. The abomination of desolation, ruling over the world in that fourth empire, and controlling all buying and selling. Now, still in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2, we get back to our text. It says, And the lawless one will be revealed, covered that, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Antichrist and Jesus Christ are not equal, not even close. The Antichrist is a man, whom we're going to read about in verse 9, that is empowered by Satan. It's just a man that is empowered by Satan. And he's going to have incredible influence over the world. Uh, but when Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's going to destroy him with just his mouth. There's not going to be clanging swords with the Antichrist and the battles ebbing and flowing and will it be Jesus? And it's not, it's not going to be like the Lord of the Rings or any of that. So get all that out of your head. That's not going to happen. He's just going to come back and he's going to speak a word 
and it'll all be over. Kind of like the way the world began, right? In Genesis, we read that God spoke this world into existence. With just his mouth, he said, this is the way it is. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be the heavens. Let there be animals. Let there be vegetation. And things were created from nothing. There's power in the word of the Lord. And he will destroy the Antichrist at the end of the days of mankind upon this earth before his kingdom is established with just a word. But we have a really vivid description of the second coming of Jesus and the description of the Antichrist in Revelation 19. So if you're not there yet, turn with me over to Revelation 19. And let's read this together. What I hope you're seeing and I know I've got a lot of verses we're turning to, but I, I'm wanting you to see how interconnected the Word of God is. These aren't just random writings that are thrown together that just don't. No, they, they fit together. You can go into the Old Testament, and as you become better familiar with the Old Testament, the New Testament will, will even mean more to you because you'll, you'll see, especially when we talk about prophecy, you'll see what they were talking about. You'll be able to put the pieces together. Understand this, prophecy was given so that you could know what God was going to do ahead of time. Now, we're not given every detail. We don't know exactly what's going to happen at every second of the, of the last days, but we have the highlights. And here is the highest light of them all. It's the returning of Jesus Christ. He came the first time to Bethlehem, but the second time, it's much different. Let's read. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This is the church. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, just like, just like Paul said. And with it, he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will himself tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he, shall have, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Well, this is rather gruesome. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Pretty dark picture. And yet it's also one that is, is 
sweet because we see the Lord coming back to set up a kingdom and to make things right. You know, we look at the world and, you know, it doesn't take long to get grieved and saddened by looking at what's happening around. And you're like, why do people treat people like this? Why, why do people want to hurt people? Why do people want to damage? Why do they want to take advantage? And, and you know, the wars that have been fought and, and all the rest. So, so often just because one man or one person or one group of people want to have domination over another. And we see the disease and we see the famine and it makes us long for something different. And there is within all of us that sense of this is not right. <laughs> this is not the way it was supposed to be. And that is true. And when Jesus comes back a second time, he will make it right. And that's what we're reading about. So it's almost like a repeat of history. When Jesus came the first time to this earth, the world rejected him and crucified him. Jesus comes again a second time, and you would think that the world would have learned their lesson and say, if Jesus was ever to come again, we would make certain that we would welcome him and worship him and give him the glory that he is due. But that's not what happens. The beast and the kings of the earth and the armies of the earth, they gather together to fight against Jesus and to make war with them. And I know for some, they hear that and they go, like, well, that's just ridiculous. Well, it wasn't ridiculous that they wanted to kill him the first time he came. This is something we know that took place. And man is no different at the end of the age, except that they are even more deceived by this one who is called the Antichrist. But we see that there'll be those that will be riding with him. That'll be us. I don't think you're going to be fighting a battle because Jesus is going to be fighting this battle with the word of his mouth. And he will be destroying and he will be conquering. And you know, when we see him do this, we will be saying, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. We're not going to be, we're not going to be troubled about this. And I understand we have questions like, well, how can this be? And why this and why that? But in the presence of him who is holy and just and true in all of his ways, we will look and we'll say, this is just and this is right. In verse 9, back in chapter 2, we read another um, aspect of this Antichrist is that he is going to be empowered by Satan. It says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And this is what they do. They deceive. Revelation 3, 12 through 15 talks about the deception that the Antichrist and the false prophet. False prophet is sidekick, okay? He's sidekick that's trying to get everybody to worship the Antichrist. And he's deceiving them and granting signs to be done in the sight of the beast. And the world is following him. There'll be a, a supernatural awakening that will take place. And Satan himself will give him power, he will perform signs, and he will perform wonders. Some will look and say, well, I don't know if these are going to be real powers and real signs and real wonders. Well, just to know, those same three words are used of Jesus in Acts 2.22. Same exact words of power and signs and wonders. They, he's going to amaze people with what he is able to do. One of his amazing acts that he's going to, um, that, that Satan is going to perform is that the Antichrist, although a leader, not everybody's going to love this guy. And at the end of the age, he's going to have other nations coming to fight against him. But he's going to have some kind of wound that happens to him. 
And there'll be a resurrection that takes place. And some say, well, this is just an apparent resurrection. Well, again, the same idiom that's used of Jesus having a resurrection is used of um, the Antichrist here. And that's going to that's gonna cause people to say, wait a minute. This guy's back from the dead? And it's going to just lead to further uh, deception. Another thing that he's going to do, and we read this in Revelation, actually our last study in the book of Revelation, is that he's going to be the one that kills the two witnesses. Do you remember those guys? You know, are they Moses and Elijah? We don't know exactly who they are, but you know, those are two names that often come up. These two men are going to come on apparently at the beginning of the tribulation, and they're going to have a ministry, and they're going to uh, fulfill their, their, their ministry of proclaiming Jesus Christ to a, a, a world that is lost. I think it's just a, a simple little idea. The witness of the church is gone, but Jesus sends other witnesses. And he sends the, he sends the witnesses of um, maybe Moses and Elijah. And while they are on earth, they're performing miracles. They're calling fire down from heaven. That sounds kind of like Elijah's ministry. They're turning water into blood. That sounds like Moses and other plagues. There's a drought. Again, sounds like Elijah's ministry. And the world can do, no, do them no harm. They're going to want to harm them. They're going to try to harm them. They're going to try and destroy these guys. But nothing can happen to them for three and a half years. They, you know, shoot them with bullets, RPGs. It doesn't matter what you do. They just kind of walk away. And they can't do anything. And the whole time, while there's this supernatural awakening, you also have a supernatural you know, light and witness from these two. And they're like, listen, the word of God says this. Jesus is the one that you must follow. It's not this guy. And there is going to be uh, incredible annoyance and hatred of these two upon planet Earth. And you know that because the Antichrist will come and he will kill them. So these two that had all this power... And now is killed by the Antichrist. It's like, well, he must have more power. If he killed them, then he's got more power. And what's going to happen, we read in Revelation, is that the world is going to start sending gifts to each other. It's going to be happy dead prophets day. You know, finally these guys and their testimony is gone. Can't stand it. And they're going to send gifts to one another. And it would seem that the Antichrist will seize upon that moment where he has just defeated them in Jerusalem, and will walk straight up to the Temple Mount, walk into the temple and say, and now that you've seen that, you understand that I am your God, worship me. And so he is going to deceive with power, and people are going to follow. Well, what's going to happen to his followers? Verses 10 through 12 tell us. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive... Please see that because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, because they didn't receive, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the followers of the Antichrist at the end of days, they're going to be condemned. They rejected the love of the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they're going to reject that. They're going to despise that truth. 
and want nothing to do with that. As they get that light and reject that light, then the Lord is going to send darkness to their spiritual understanding. A strong delusion will come over them, and they're going to believe the lie. Which lie? Well, the lie that the Antichrist is saying, I'm your God, worship me. It's not Jesus Christ, it's me that you need to follow. And they're going to be deluded into following this, this lie. And why did they do this? Because they did not believe the truth at the end of verse 12, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's that? Jesus cramped their style. Isn't that what we talked about in our study on um, if our Christmas study and how when Jesus came, there was no room for him? There was no room with Herod. There was no room in the inn. There was no room among his, the people of Nazareth. There was no room. It, they rejected him and said, we don't want to follow you. We don't want to be led by you. Actually, John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. In the first century world, people were doing what they wanted to do on their own terms and in their own way. And Jesus came and brought light and they're like, we don't like that light. And we don't want to receive it because we don't want to have him telling us how to live life. And they rejected him. At the end of days, as we just read there in verse 12, people will love their pleasure more than they will love the truth of the gospel. Again, the, the first century world and the last days world have the same problem as what we have going on and every generation has had, is that people would rather do what they want to do than to have a king over them, to have one to rule over them. Now, that's not true for all, right? Because you're here, you're following followers of the Lord. But let me do ask you, maybe you're not a follower of the Lord. Or maybe you would say you're a follower of the Lord, but you know what? He doesn't have authority over your life. Jesus said in the last days, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do all this? He says, I don't know who in the world you are. Depart from me. It was no oh, way we prophesied in your name. We had like ministry credentials. They're not valid up here. What, a, what a, an awakening that's going to be. Does Jesus have lordship over your life? Do, do you welcome the light of Jesus and how he says to live and how he wants, what he wants you to do with your life? Are you like, well, that's good. You know, I know that's in the Bible and stuff, but I'm just not really into that right now, and I really don't think that applies to me. <laughs> On what basis are you able just to kind of strike something from Scripture and say, it doesn't apply to me? You don't have that authority. You can delude yourself into thinking you have that authority, but you don't have it. The same authority that God's Word has over my life, it has over your life, and it has over everyone's life. The difference is, some receive that light and say, yes, Jesus. You know, I will gladly follow you. And others will say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I pray that you are one that is embracing the light of Jesus Christ in your life and following him. And if you're not, it's not too late. Well, I've wait too far down the road. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not too far down the road in whatever you're doing because you're hearing the word of the Lord right now. And God is willing to show you that it's wrong. If you know that there's something that's going on in your life that's wrong and sinful and you're thinking it's too late, no, God just showed you. 
What does God do when he's done with people? He allows them to sink further into darkness and delusion. If you know what you're doing is sinful, that's the light of the Lord. And that is a blessing. That is the kindness and the favor of God that he would tell you that that's not right. That's not judgmental. That's not, you know, uh, you know, tyrannical. That's what loving, a loving Heavenly Father would do is to say, this is not right, but this is right. And I would encourage you to follow Jesus. Well, what about the followers of Jesus Christ? The followers of the Antichrist, they're going to be condemned. What about the followers of Jesus Christ? Well, they're going to be glorified. Look at verses 13 and 14. But we, so in contrast to those that follow the Antichrist, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel. Look at this. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is some amazing stuff. The followers of Jesus Christ, they're not condemned. They're, they are for the obtaining of glory. What a beautiful thing. It says that we are chosen. That he chose us for, from the beginning God chose you. Think about that. Before you were ever born, in the beginning of time, God chose you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he chose you to be a part of his kingdom. Now, if you're like, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, does that mean he hasn't chosen me? Well, then I would say love the truth. If you love the truth and you embrace the gospel, then clearly you're chosen. You're like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then maybe you're not chosen. Well, if that bothers you, then why don't you embrace the light? You know, this is a thing that we often go back and forth with. But you know what I really believe our response should be to this idea that God chose people to obtain glory? We should fall down on our faces and say, are you kidding me? You chose me? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? That you would send your son to this world to die for me? Lord, I'm not worthy of this. And, and so, too often what we end up doing is starting to fight over, you know, man's free will and God's sovereignty and predestination, election and foreknowledge. And we get into arguments that are way above our pay grade. And we think we know better than the, all the centuries that have come before. Hey, God is sovereign and, God, and man chooses. And somehow that works out. I say God has sovereignly allowed man to choose. That's his program. But do you see what else is part of his program? Not just that he would choose you for salvation, but through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God didn't just save us and say, okay, I'm saving you, but you are, what a mess you are. Now, that life is more messed up than any life I've ever seen. Um, I'll get back to you when I come back, and we'll change you when we get to heaven, because right now, not interested. No, it's not what the Lord does. He chooses us for salvation and begins immediately the process of making us holy. That's what sanctification is. And how does he do that? He does that by the Spirit's work in our life, and he does that by belief in the truth. You know, if I don't believe the Word of God, then I'm not going to allow that to have a, a sanctifying impact upon my life, will I? Why would I give up or embrace something that I don't even believe is true? So the followers of Jesus Christ, they are glorified. And then lastly, verses 15 through 17, and we close, we close right there. Um, believers are exhorted to stand fast in 
good hope. Therefore, brethren, therefore, you're going to be glorified. You're being sanctified. Because of that, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and a good hope by grace. And I just love that phrase. We have a good hope. We are saved. We are going to spend eternity with the Lord. There's no hope that compares to that hope. And how did that hope come to us? It tells us, by grace. You didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It comes by grace. Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And that's what the Lord wants, is for us to be fully transformed and to be fully established in everything we do and in everything we say. Are you allowing that to happen? Are you allowing that steadfast walk to be lived out? If you look at your life today, and you're like, man, you know, I think I was more sanctified 10 years ago than I am today. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Why, why is that? What's happened? Where is it that you have began to push away the presence and the work of the Spirit of God in your life? I, you know, and let's just talk about Troy Warner. I should be kinder today than I was at the beginning of the year or five years ago because I am being sanctified not through my own efforts or just some, through some really powerful principles. I'm being transformed by who? The third person of the Godhead, by the Holy Spirit. And so my life should be different. And listen, if your life is worse off today in Christ than it was, and you look less like Christ today than you did you know, previously, don't blame that on the Lord. Somewhere along the way, we have started to buck the sanctification process of the Holy Spirit in our life and the Word of God speaking into our life. But you can, you can begin afresh that work. It's, this is God's process. Again, he doesn't just say, all right, saved you. Ah, boy, we'll just deal with you in heaven. He doesn't do that. He starts changing you right now. Now, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you about some of those areas in your life, again, that's, that's kindness, isn't it? Isn't that pleasure? Could you imagine if somebody was never willing to tell you when something's wrong? You go to the mechanic, they always tell you, good. car's great. It's wonderful. Yeah, but every time I started it up, it, you know, it, smoke comes out of it. And, you know, it's like, no, it's perfect. You go to the doctor. You're in perfect health. You're great. You know, don't change a thing. Keep eating the way you are. No exercise. Perfect. It's good. You know, I mean, what if every time we turned around, we were told, hey, this is really, you know, just perfect. And, and there's trouble there. You go to your tax guy. He tells you this is it. Filed them away just perfectly. And it's not. I mean, you think about all the ways in which we welcome that correction into our life. Well, if the Lord is correcting you this morning, it is his favor. It's his kindness. And it all, as I said before, and I'll just, I'll end right here. It also means he's still speaking to you. It's not because you're so spiritual. It's because he's speaking to you. And he's drawing you unto himself. And so what are you going to do with that light? Are you going to receive that and act upon it? You know, you can deal with those issues in your life. I pray that you would do it today.